Rusty Quill presents. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. existence. Not even necessarily the lofty goals of political activists, physical fitness hobbyists, and fledgling artists, but the basic and honest goals that anybody might have. Keeping to a schedule, saving for a vacation, or even finally, finally cleaning the inside of the windshield in your car. Having focus keeps us from drifting into a pointless and work-oriented life. It ensures, in fact, that our lives stay ours, that the dollars and cents we accrue and the time we spend to accrue them are truly ours and not incidental to the life we were born into. But some goals can lead people astray or are flatly poisonous to begin with. Horrific ends with unthinkable means, so to say, and today's story concerns a man with just such a goal. A sailor of some experience who will do anything to return to the material heaven he has found on earth, betraying himself and those who rely on him in the process. But first, this month's recommendations. I've threatened to do this before, but it seems this is going to be the first month where both my literature recommendation and random horror recommendation actually line up. This month's literature recommendation is Dan Simmons' 2007 novel, The Terror. Based extensively on Sir John Franklin's doomed polar expedition of 1845, the book is part horror story and part maritime drama, with all the brass button and gabardine trappings you would expect from such a story. 
It's about half master and commander and half the thing. With the constant threat of mutiny amongst the men is ever rising as supplies run low and hope of rescue dwindles. All while some shapeless white creature on the ice hunts the crews of two frozen-in ships, the Erebus, and the titular Terror. The story is not perfect. I think mostly because of the difficulty of mixing real events with the supernatural. Simmons' attention to historic detail is intensive, however, and anybody with an interest in the Age of Sail will probably love this story. It is a ponderous book, and for sure not a casual read, but if you're running low on good horror or want to challenge yourself with an exceptional bit of historical horror fiction, I'd definitely check this one out. This month's random horror recommendation is the 2018 AMC television adaptation of the terror developed by David Kajganich. I will strongly, strongly add that I am only recommending the first season of the tear and not the follow-up season, which is completely unrelated and developed by other parties entirely, from what I understand. The AMC adaptation of the tear is, and I can say this fairly confidently, my favorite single season of television I've ever watched. Even gently nudging aside the near masterpiece that is the first season of True Detective. With a careful hand, the team that created the adaptation managed to simultaneously excise every good part of Simmons' novel while still yet addressing the few issues that keeps it from being perfect. The more extraordinary paranormal aspects of the books are toned down slightly for a more approachable and filmable monster. But, more to the point, the focus on the shipmates, their deepening plight, and moreover their inherent humanity and brotherhood as they endeavor to survive against impossible odds is absolutely perfect. I really can't recommend AMC's The Terror enough. It's one of the few book adaptations I can think of that actually supersede the original work in all areas. It is an absolute must-watch. If you'd like to hear a more in-depth take on the terror novel, the television adaptation, and the failed second season, then don't forget to tune in two weeks from now for the West Side Fairy Tales Horror and Lit Club. That's right here on the main feed between the regular episodes, so please hop in, have a listen, and then join us in the West Side Fairy Tales Horror and Lit Club on Facebook for some discussion. Now, without further ado, today's story, Oh Heaven... But they keep slipping off. Nothing I can do to keep them on, to keep myself from rolling back across the planks, away from the sweet, cold water in the light. Oh, that blinding light. On earth as it is in heaven. Oh, to Haiti. It's his fault, of course. That bloody madman, Christian. It was him who led us out into the dark, who turned us against the captain. He pulled us shore as a crosswind until we were floating in these doldrums. I say we, but it is just I, Mayback, an able seaman of no great accomplishment, but many, many years upon the foredecks and in the masts of ships. I set sail on the golden fist shortly before the hurricanes came to those blighted sugar islands south of the New World. I had tired of travelling with human cargo and so took work as a hand on a ship, 
headed in the opposite direction of those tired, dark faces. The lot of them would ever be half dead with exhaustion and jaundice, or fat with scurvy and bleeding even when they weren't cut. Those eyes, so flat and white and miserable, God, that I'd never looked into them. We didn't take on Christian and truth until we offloaded in Djibouti. Spice and rum and cotton and sundry other goods from the keys at packed holes still rank with the sweat of human misery. Captain Luxley, a lifetime man with the company who'd done time as a pirate hunter under the cook, strode up on decks with enough swagger to set us all rocking. And with him, Christian Vetter, first mate, protege. Luxley got to work straight away, and even though many of us were on furlough or leave, the few remaining were held responsible for the condition of the ship. Within hours, we were wholly stoning and washing every bulkhead and deck until the golden fist actually seemed its namesake. It weren't long before the lads took to saying Luxley had shoved the golden fist right up our asses. Still, it weren't a big ado then. Just another brassy twat letting the lads know who the new boss was. Brasses like that, and I will say, they gotta be. Otherwise things start getting out of hand. There are only two ways to tie a knot, they say. Tight and right. Anything else in your ass can it get fucked. Man like that's gotta be a right, tight cunt to get anything done. It's just the nature of things. Captain stayed ashore with his wife while we were overhauling the ship, but he left Christian behind. Christian were a queer sort, even then, before everything. The man perched when he rested, like an albatross. He hadn't more flesh on him than a half-starved alley cat, but he sat fatly on things. Barrels, cross ropes, banisters, it didn't matter. The man would pull himself up on them, just a little bit higher than you and tuck his feet and legs up under his ass. You'd come up the stairs and find him at the top, staring down at you with his mouth not quite matching his eyes. It fixed you a smile and returned the greeting of the day when you offered it to him. Then he'd flit off, going wherever the fucking wind blew him and bothering somebody else. That's how I found him that last night before we shoved off. I'd been given the duty to relay the count, sailors, cargo, and the like, to the captain's quarters before he tucked in for the night. Luxley sat behind his desk in his quarters, mulling over a natty-looking map done up in characters I'd never seen before. I'd never learned my letters by any stretch, but traveling around as much as I did, I could tell most characters apart, at least by language. The Arabs had their swooping, looping lines of curls, the Chinese had their little boxes and houses that went up ways and down ways on paper like chicken scratch pillars. The Russians' nonsense looked like the Greeks' nonsense and most everything else that was European looked like those enough that I got them confused sometimes, but this was something new entirely. The letters were entirely black and connected. They looked like rosebush switches to me in honest or maybe the shadows of them on the paper. Luxley seemed to be having his own bit of trouble working over the characters. He barely paid me attention as I rattled off the counts and he jotted them down in the book. 
I myself was distracted by the other man in the room, Christian, though I didn't know him well at the time. He was a pale sort with dull, coin-gold eyes, dressed in dandy finery that always seemed a little too nice for being shipboard. As it was, his generally blue-black clothing was badly worn around the wrists and stained through on the white collars. Even his curly hair seemed oily and limp and brittle. Christian was perched up on the piano Luxley had brought aboard. A fucking sight that had been. Luxley's hen of a wife clucking after that thing every bloody fucking inch as we took it aboard. It was a pretty, flat, black piece of work the carpenters had toiled over carefully, so it'd stay in place. Luxley proudly boasted there were only ten or so in the world like it. If Luxley's wife was a hen, he was a rooster. The man had stick legs and a barrel chest that complemented his assless strutting. Though he claimed to have been a sailing man since birth, he had hands softer than kitten pussy and a dead fish handshake. But we only knew that because he shook every man's hand when we got aboard that last day before shoving off. My mate, Lamplighter, reckoned it was on account of how much glad-handing the man did. Said it smoothed him like a holy stone, them round rocks we used to sand the decks. Still, it was well enough that he shook our hands in the first place. His sort rarely deigned to look men like me and Lamplighter in the eyes, so much as actually reach out and touch us. Maybe to cuff an ear or the like, but never to show a man you saw him as that, as a man. Little good it did him in the end, though. Shame to say. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. We shoved off and that was that. Cool blue and green oceans all the way down south. Did a great deal of pirate watching, passing France and especially around the shoulder of Africa. Not much we could do if we'd seen them either. The Golden Fist was a slow tub if ever there was one, and twice as slow as the slowest pirate cutter. Moreover, we had a single marine aboard. Maybe a handful of the men could wield a knife or an axe well enough, but that'd do little against an accompaniment of men with flintlocks and cutlasses and the like. Captain Luxley pushed us hard through them straits, nearly having the time we'd expected to make it down the Horn of Africa. I'll not waste your time with the technicals of it, but understand the man was a true master of the seas. He'd sit afore decks with Christian pointing this way and that with his soft little hands and giving out directions like none the helmsman and navigator had ever heard. They'd been through these waters a dozen times more than most of us, and they grumbled at what they called uppity new blood. But their complaints lost wind as the golden fist found its own, again and again, slipping into currents and tailwinds them on the helm had never seen at once, despite their travelling. That was the first of the troubles right there. One of the ship's helmsmen, a flat-nosed Moorish, raised a stink about travelling through a shallows near Djibouti. 
He said he'd traveled those waters more times than maybe any man living on Earth. Maybe he was right, though I, I doubt it. He had a habit of drinking and running off at the mouth to the crew below decks. The boys would get him riled up for sport, and I think that gave his heart a poisonous sort of bravery. We were three slow, unsteady days traveling through the shallows when the helmsman lost his tongue in front of the captain. Aleph, his name was, was on edge from days of gripping the helm like a vice, guiding the golden fist through shoals littered with broken wood and rigging from other ships. The sand there was as black as well. The sand there was black as well, tarred dark from a rotten, stinking algae that had bloomed and died in the past weeks. Every slight rub against the high sandbar shook the ship. Steady now, was all Captain Luxley had said. Simple enough, but poor Aleph had heard that uselessness come from Luxley's face a dozen times in the past hour or so. He said it every time we sounded bottom with the hull of the ship. If you never sailed, it's about the most frightening thing you can feel, aside from it outright rolling or breaking out from underneath you. It's like every plank and seam is shuddering, threatening to pop loose. It gets in your teeth, in your bones. We'd not be dealing with this if you'd just gone round these shoals, Aleph said, releasing the helm and rounding on Captain Luxley hard enough to make the man start. The currents took the rudder and the ship threatened to turn. In a single motion, Christian leapt down from the rear banister and lashed the moor across his back with a nine-tails I'd never seen him hold, much less use. Aleph fell out of the way. Captain Luxley calmly stepped up to the helm, setting the course right and not saying a thing until he asked Christian to stop whipping Aleph. The man had all but shredded the poor helmsman down to the bone. I had seen all this from a few paces away said as I was to cleaning the decks thereabouts. The black algae, some more nefarious mold we were learning, had begun growing up the bulkheads of the ship. It was foul and thin and slimy, impossible to clean without sanding the deck down to fresh wood. It stank as well, like a corpse pit, and any man not busy with the sailing of the fist was always being called on for cleaning duties. Aleph lay in a pile of our sandings and scrapings, as it were, barely moving, his blood making a nasty mush of the wood and mould. Other men on the cleaning detail worked around him, some casting mean looks at him for bleeding on the freshly cleaned parts. But nobody dared look at Luxley, for fear of Christian's cat. The mood on the ship grew cold after that. Luxley's earlier affability was soon forgotten, and all talk became complaints of the ship's morale. Men grumbled their way from task to task, but even that little bit of freedom seemed curtailed by Christian's constant presence. The queer man roamed the ship like a spectre. An imp, somehow always just up and out of sight wherever you were. I found him hovering over me once during watch. I was posted on the shipboard banister shining a lamp down over the rolling black beneath the ship. Big water is most frightening at night. In the day it shines the light of heaven back at itself, a mirror over all the earth that God may look down and admire himself in. But that light don't go far down into that cold darkness. You can see this at night, like I was then, 
when you're shining a lamp down at the surface. You see just how far the ocean will truly tolerate the light. It sits in a layer on the surface like a pocket of oil. The deeper waters, though, they hold illumination and contempt. You see, they neither need nor want it. And the surface serves that darkness by shining God's own glory back into his face, blinding him so he can't see what horrors lay down there, just beneath the waves. I snapped up from my reverie and turned to see the glowing, golden eyes burning in the dark above me. Christian sat perched atop the foremast spreader. In the Caribbean, there are fat-bottomed spiders that slide down on strings and drop their nets on prey, instead of just waiting for the tug of their web. That's what he reminded me of, sitting up there and just watching me. He said nothing when I spotted him, though I shone the projecting lantern straight onto his face. The most he did was clear his scratchy throat and itch at some rash spreading up his left arm. I grew uncomfortable, watching him watching me, and turned around without saying anything. It would normally be polite to hail the first mate, but I didn't want to make a noise, for fear it might set him off somehow. Despite Christian's queerness, he was popular with the rest of the crew. There were about forty of us in total, all sailors of some stripe and age and he knew how to speak to us in our own tongue. People forget that, the high classes, that we don't all speak the same. It's like setting port in a strange land. Better to stick with your own if you can't blend in. But Christian could blend. I kept away from him for my own reasons, having always preferred to take my leisure in solitude. The others diced with him and occasionally tried their hands at cards, though that was as good as giving money away to the man. He had the devil's luck, they said, though I expect he made his own. He drank, too, and preferred the company of some of the roundabout types amongst the younger members of the crew. He'd snuggle up to them in the first mate's quarters, and they'd walk around like new-made brides the next few days. You ate better if you warmed better beds than your own, though some turned their noses up at that sort of thing, thought it no better than whoring, or perhaps only slightly better. Hey guys, I'm always on the hunt for awesome podcasts to listen to, and I wanted to take a minute to talk about a show I'm excited about. If you're a fan of the West Side Fairy Tales, then I think True Crime Fan Club will be right up your alley. Take a glimpse into the life and crimes of some of the most evil minds, with topics ranging from the seemingly innocent granny who poisons her victims to the serial killer who conned the state of Wisconsin. If you like the show, make sure to check out their premium channel on Himalaya, where you can find all episodes ad-free in 24 hours early, as well as bonus exclusive content and a members-only community where you can interact with the host and other fans. Simply download the Himalaya app, search True Crime Fan Club, and enter promo code TCFC for your first month. Absolutely free. So what are you waiting for? Go check out True Crime Fan Club. I love the show. And I think you will, too.
The captain kept hard on us through the Indian Ocean, where we made a show of firing our four ancient cannons at would-be pirates and hoping they didn't notice our terrible lack of practice. More pirates, French and Arab ships by the captain's speculation, tailed us through the heart of the Indian. They were smaller ships, maneuverable and capable of getting close in bad wind or intercepting offshore. But the Golden Fist made its money in the straightaways and they fell away over the course of days. It seems like little, but the experience frayed the nerves. Word got around below decks of the horrible treatment of men taken by pirates in these waters. A story spread of a man branded and hobbled, chained to an oar to row from port to port until he took his own life by splintering the haft beside his chains and driving it into his throat. A high-class man like the captain would be treated handsomely and then ransomed back to the company for a tidy sum everybody knew. So taking his chances in piratey waters to cut a few short weeks off the journey sat ill with the entire crew. And, if he heard the acidic rumblings in the corners of his ship, he gave no indication of concern save for pushing us harder. That was always his answer to the question. Hard work and harder work still to keep men honest. Captain had little real respect for us lower class folk, was the grumbling heard most often. Aleph, who remained stiff till his dying day from the striping Christian had given him, complained that we hadn't need of any captain to run the ship. Talk turned lightly mutinous before we reached the Straits of Indonesia, the Timor Sea, and then the islands of the Pacific. We saw less and less of Christian at this time. The man had secreted himself away in his quarters, taken badly with some sort of illness. The captain elevated Lamplighter, of all people, to Christian's place, having decided my friend was a capable and honest man. The authority changed Lamplighter over the course of days, warping his earnest affability into sullen, rough distrust of his former shipmates. You've no idea the strain of dealing with you fools, he'd said to me once, after I'd complained of his new behaviors. No idea at all. This caused a row between us that never healed, and only grew worse. Christian's illness had upset the delicate balance of ship life in a way nobody could have predicted. Except, perhaps Christian, I expect. Without lamplighter, I had nobody else to vent my complaints to on the ship, and so I started venting them to everybody who would listen. The other men divided into two camps, those who couldn't tolerate the sight of me and those who clung to my every word. Who'd sneak over to my bunk to listen as I voided my spiritual bowels of complaints of treatment, class, and respect. My reputation as a rabble-rouser grew on the ship until it caught the captain's ears. I was on my nightly watch, staring down into the roiling murk, when Captain Luxley himself came to visit me. His face was a vision of barely concealed anger and worry and he pushed my shoulder roughly to get my attention. Then he lambasted me about my queer behavior and my carousing with the crew. I listened politely and gave him a greeting fitting his station, formal and clipped, which met with another concerned look. Then he shook his head and took leave. Days later we reached Otaheite, that chunk of gold set in the blue expanse of the Pacific. 
We breathed a sigh of relief across the entire ship that felt like a knife sliding back into its sheath. Even the captain smiled and laughed when the lookout spotted land. We had arrived more than two months ahead of time, and so had at least a month in port before leaving with our cargo for the return trip. I supervised most of the offloading, though I remember little of it. It seemed every man had his head craned just over his shoulder as he bent to his work. I shifted from boxes and barrels to the lithe brown bodies of the local women, and the hutted drinkeries and smoke dens where we'd spend our hard-earned coin. The offloading ended shortly after dark, and I even saw Christian slink out of his quarters and down into the dark side alleys. Oh heaven, oh to Haiti. Nights and days carousing with beautiful men and women drowning in drink and song. Oh heaven, oh to Haiti, where sweat mixes with rum and the soft ocean salts to bride away the stench of life. Oh heaven, oh to Haiti, denied and taken from us when we were only just learning to love you properly. It was Captain Luxley who dragged a lot of us back aboard the next month sending the constabulary into every nook and cranny on the island until he checked off every name on the manifest. Only one didn't make it back aboard, on account of he'd been hanged the day after we'd landed for cutting off a native girl's nose when she'd insulted him. The captain gave that man's lay to the girl's family in recompense, though by all rights it should have been divided back out into the crew's take. Another slight against us, though he didn't know. Another slight. Christian crept back aboard with the setting sun, coughing badly and giving the watch a start. He didn't bother with the gangplank, but instead went hand over hand up the mooring line like a cat. Rumors spread that he'd gone after the services of some island witch doctor to cure the rash on his arm. Anybody the man passed smelled the rot in his skin, so like that black algal bloom off the coast of Africa. Anybody the man passed smelled the rot in his skin, so like that black algae bloom off the coast of Africa. His quarters reeked of it, and even when I couldn't see him, I could smell the stench as though it clung to me. Heavy hearts cast off those lines that tied the golden fist to the shores of Otaheite. Luxley addressed the men that first night. The placid ocean sat beneath us like a bale of deadening cotton. Stillness of the night belied our speed, the movement of the ship detectable only in the intangible creak and shiver of the wood and rigging. From his speech, it was apparent he thought our escapades in Otaheite had burned away the malaise gripping the ship before it reached port. In fact, the opposite was true. If anybody had trusted him enough to say, he would have known it. We had tasted freedom there, in Otaheite a truer and more honest freedom than London had ever shown us. We'd stretched legs we had never knew we had, felt blood pumping and veins long thirsty for heat. Many of us had become iron, red hot needing a true, pure oil for the quench. Not another four months in crucible. Luxley ended his speech on a sour note, trailing off as though another thought had entered his head. Perhaps he had expected a more favorable reaction. Christian watched him from his perch beside the ladder well, 
yellow eyes catching the sparse lantern-like feverish wetness. He plucked at his rotting arm. The lesions there had bled through the linen shirt sleeve, and black dandruff fell from the cuff to gather on his stained blue trousers. He looked at me, and I averted my eyes. The mood on the ship soured quickly over the next week. Lamplighter, face stretched from the worries of his new position, seemed almost green from stress. Back talk and belligerence had become daily on the ship, and he had employed one of the bilge boys to take up his duty with the lash. His own arm had tired after the third or fourth day. I kept counsel at nights. The men gathered around my hammock now formed a sort of wall for our secret meeting space. They seemed a mass of uniform black, dotted throughout with sets of eyes. We would tell the concerned others, the men whose loyalties to Luxley had never wavered, that we were rolling dice to avoid suspicion. There we talked about many things, how we would run the golden fist if it were ours and not Captain Luxley's, how every man would rate a fair share of the lay, and how we'd replace the lash with civility and direct conversation. But most of all we talked of Otaheite, that golden paradise. We shared stories of rum and women, and our plans for when we returned. How we would conquer one of those islands for ourselves, then dismount the cannons and build a fort. Our own heaven. A paradise. Otaheite. Lamplighter found me on my watch on a night soon after. A storm had broken the sky in the far distance, lightning thrashing the open sea with all the wrath of God. But here, so far away, the sea remained placid. The only hint of the storm was the sweet smell of rain on the wind, mixed with the ever-present salt. You're a fool, Lamplighter told me. You are a bootlick, I told him in return. We argued like that for a while. Lamplighter threatening to have me striped, to have me hanged for my little meetings with the disaffected crew. I warned him in turn that a man wouldn't waste time with threats if he had the spine to carry through with them. He told me the captain planned to put me off the boat in Australia, chained and headed for the gibbet as a mutineer. I told him it was too dark to mount a search for a man overboard at this time of night, and that anyway, nobody would probably hear if somebody fell off the ship. Lamplighter blanched and called me a fool again, and stormed off into the ship. I turned back to the dark water, watching the film of green lights skating over the oily blackness below. I pretended that I didn't see Christian perched up in the rigging again, eyes catching the light like stolen coins. He found me the next day, when I was alone in my hammock after the night watch. He sat on the crossbeam that held our scant packs, twisted up into the curve of the bulkhead to do so. I watched with suspicion as his queer eyes played over me, looking for heaven only knows what. When the silence had dragged on so that I thought I might scream to break it, he spoke. They'll put you off today, if you and the others don't take the ship, he said. His voice was slow and oily. The corruption on his arm had spread to his chin, and the blackish rash had taken on red and purple veining. I could not tell if those veins belonged to his flesh, or the creeping rot slowly devouring him. 
Why are you telling me this? I asked him, not daring to move. In the stillness amidships, in the sulking darkness, his gaze felt like that of a large cat. He would devour me if I moved too quickly. Moved at all. He scratched at the lesions on his arm. The shirt there lay in shreds. Don't you miss her? Oh, Tahiti. He asked. Yes. I said quickly, as though reciting a catechism. Even in this monster's mouth, that name sounded so beautiful. Every syllable rang, four of them in sequence, two beats, an accent, and another beat. Music built into the word itself. Oh, Tahiti. Then go back to her, he said. His eyes flashed. The black dandruff fell from his face to settle on my bedroll. It disgusted me, but I dared not brush it away. Dared not move at all. Take the ship today. He'll have guessed your play by tomorrow. So I acted, moving quickly through the lower decks and gathering the men I could. Some of the rest I could count on remained above decks, but by the time we had armed ourselves with hatchets and muskets from the powder keg, we numbered twenty-four. Our mutiny was a quiet affair. We walked above decks and stood like fools until one of the ship's lieutenants, a man named Fry, demanded to know what we were doing. Christian took his perch on the banister and so left it to me, of all people, to take charge of this fool thing. I demanded to see the captain, thinking I'd be abandoned by my men and hanged on the spot. Luxley blanched at my platoon of mutineers. Knowledge of what was happening hadn't yet spread to the rest of the crew, and a dozen or so deckhands still milled about in the rigging overhead, seeing to the ship. Luxley's face turned red with anger, but he never so much as raised his voice. Instead, he commanded Lamplighter to have me surrender my weapon. My friend approached with the bilge boy in tow. What have you done, you fool? He asked. Surrender, before there's any bloodshed. An honest request. I wish to this day I had honored it. I turned over my rifle and walked quickly and quietly to my noose. Instead, I swung the gaff I'd brought as a weapon at his head. He ducked, but the barb caught the bilge boy in the cheek and dropped him to the deck. The boy clutched his face and howled blood seeping through his fingers. The men behind me shouted and our mutiny began in earnest. In minutes, and with no blood spilled by any hand but mine, it ended. Captain Luxley stood resolute beside the off-banister with the rest of his loyal men, most of them officers and warrant officers. Useless plotters and planners that did no real work about the ship. He stayed calm and suggested we surrender, keeping at it until Aleph held a bayonet to his throat. In the end, we set him and eighteen others to sail on a lifeboat with enough provisions to get them to Australia. Luxley endeavoured to remain captain until the very last, promising amnesty to the lot of us, save myself, if we returned the ship to his control. I felt my mutineers sway even as they felt the nooses around their necks a promise surely to be kept should pursuers ever find us. 
The thought of being betrayed by my own mutineers before my mutiny had finished rankled me. Then I felt Christian's eyes on me. They glittered up in the mizzen mast. They shone like steel left too long in the coals. Lamplighter stepped forward to give some impassioned plea for sanity. He raised his hands to the side, standing in front of the captain and begging us to think rationally. I felt the tide shift against me and struck without thinking, burying my gaff in his chest, pushing it through his heart and into Captain Luxley's shoulder. Both of them fell back into the lifeboat amidst cries of shock and outrage. The loyal men gave me looks of contempt like none I'd ever known. Those hateful eyes watched me as Aleph and the others lowered them to the sea. All those eyes save lamplighters, whose blank gaze looked only on the sky. Little time was spent turning the ship toward Otaheite. It was with cries of Otaheite and to Otaheite that we raised sail and curved the golden fist into the waves. Only Christian looked back to the horizon, where Captain Luxley and his loyal men sailed with dead lamplighter. The sun sank beneath the waves between our heaven and us. Otaheite. We drank the captain's store of rum over the next two days and lost a man to a fall on the third. We'd allowed the captain to leave with the ship's register, having no need of it ourselves and not wanting such damning evidence aboard our ship anyway. The man had fallen from the foremast while tending to the Jacob's ladder. It had caught his throat on the way down, snapping his neck before he ever touched the deck. We put him overboard wrapped in sailcloth, though nobody knew what words to say over his body. Work became much harder, with the crew reduced by near half. Our nightly watches were stripped, and theft became an issue when the food stores grew low. I spent many nights with Christian, listening to his tales of what he'd gotten up to in the mountains of Otaheite. He told me tales of golden temples and an old man who could make you immortal by carving a third eye into your forehead with cold iron. Days passed, maybe weeks, and we did not reach Otaheite. Aleph came to me first, nervous and wringing his hands. His fingers seemed long from the way hunger wasted them. He said there was a man, named Tav, amongst the rest who was suspected of stealing food. All the men blamed him, at least, but nobody could find him. He said the mood on the ship was getting bad. Discipline had slipped or disappeared completely, and men had to be asked many times to do the smallest thing. Ropes swung wild on the deck during even the smallest storm, and worst of all, the creeping black mold had slipped beyond the gunwales now sat on the deck, treacherously slippery in places and reeking at all times of old, cold sewage. Christian sat atop Captain Luxley's piano. The corruption had spread across his chest so that even his blue vest had soaked through with juice from the weeping sores. He cracked his teeth and Aleph looked around the room. Then back at me. I grumbled about something I can't remember what, and then I told him to bring everybody above decks for a count. We did a count and found the number at only eighteen, though I thought I'd seen shadows of men in the rigging above. The other men had grown nervous since the mutiny. Their eyes roamed over every stretch of the horizon for signs of pursuers when they were not keeping watch on their fellow hands. Hunger gnawed at them and thirst would come soon. 
Hunger gnawed at them, and thirst would come soon. We'd exhausted nearly half the water barrels somehow. I tried to make a brave show of leadership, storming up and down the rows and demanding Tav show himself. I asked if anybody knew him, and most remained quiet. The few who did speak said they knew that was the name of the man who'd been stealing the food. An argument broke out, and soon a man was left bloodied and alone near the base of the foremast, a knife sticking out of his stomach. It took little for all aboard to agree that this man was Tav, and so we strung him up by the spreader, despite him being nearly dead already from the stabbing. His dying body twitched and kicked and stilled. We pulled him down and tossed him overboard, not bothering with words or sailcloth. A scrim of the black sludge seemed to cling around the sadly floating body as it faded into the waves and, finally, disappeared. At Christian's urging, I opened the coffers and divided the ship's remaining coin amongst the surviving mutineers. They made a show of being happy about it. But coin is a little comfort when there's no spending it, and so the mood grew sour again. I began to feel eyes on me everywhere, and the men no longer sought me out to hear my stories of Otaheite and the times we'd have there. Spotting land, I think, was the only thing that kept a knife from my back. Three islands, each nearly as small as the ship itself, sat in a broad network of shoals in the water off port side. As many men grumbled about it not being Otaheite's, did celebrate any sight of land at all. With the lifeboat gone, we had no way to reach shore without grounding the boat. A sure suicide if Captain Luxley had reached land and set pursuers on us. Two men volunteered to swim ashore, glad to be quit of the boat in any case. They leapt off the golden fist to cheers and shouts, waving from the water before paddling into the island. We watched a crowd of natives gather on the beach, coming up from huts hidden in the brush. In seconds, they had filled the two men with spears and set canoes in the water to come for the ship herself. On my orders, the remaining mutineers set up the cannons and fired at the natives. Only one shot hit that I could see, blasting a canoe and the men inside to splinters. The other canoes retreated back to the island, where the natives gathered up our dead shipmate and dragged their bodies into the brush. God only knows why. I had the men shell the island until the guns overheated and the splintered palm trees burst into flame. Then we sailed on. I saw less and less of the men over the next few days. When I did, all I heard were stories of the elusive Tav, who'd squirreled himself away somewhere in the hold with a hoard of jerky and biscuits and limes. Or who'd learned to turn himself into mist with the help of some Otaheite witch doctor and was simply throwing the food into the sea to punish us for mutiny and murder. Some days only Aleph would appear when I called the men up for a count. Other times maybe five or six would show. No matter what the hour, however, the ship always stayed in the wind, cruising along a calm, dark sea. At any time of day you could hear the men in the rigging, the banisters, shifting the sails and tying the lines and keeping the golden fist moving. You just couldn't look at them. Not long, anyway. Lingering any sort of time on deck could make you sick from the smell of the creeping mold. 
It grew in thick patches now, fat little pads like loamy earth that were not slippery, but smelled all the more foul than the normal scrims of black. My most pressing need came to be trying to find Tav, so I could kill him and save my ship, and finding Christian. The man had disappeared somehow, but I knew he was still around. The black dandruff from his hideous rash lingered over all the ship's interior, sometimes filling the air between decks. It gave me grim thoughts of Captain Luxley, and how the ship at once sparkled under his command. A stink had built up below decks, where I never went any more. The other mutineers now frightened and disgusted me. They slunk around in the shadows, drawn in grey, stretched thin from starvation. Aleph had taken to slinking around down there, picking up shares of the coin the men who disappeared left behind. I finally found him slumped against the banister. I finally found him slumped against the bulkhead. Madness had reddened his eyes. His bloated gut slumped over his belt, skin splitting down over his belly button from distension. Bags of gold coins sat around him on the deck, and as I watched, he took a handful and put them into his mouth. Then he took a mouthful of salt water from a bucket at his left hand and swallowed them. He saw me and smiled. His teeth had all fallen out or gone black. What are you doing? I asked him, prying another handful of gold out of his fist before he could put them in his mouth. Going to Otaheite, Captain, he said with a laugh. Where are the other men? I asked, and he shrugged. Look to the rigging, he laughed. They'll not have me, though. I'm for Otaheite. He scraped a coin off the deck and raised it to his lips, but burped a bloody chunk of something into his palm instead. Gold coins shone amongst shreds of skin and other horrors. His eyes rolled toward me. Unto heaven, he whispered. To Otaheite. I ran to my quarters hoping to find Christian to ask for his help. I found him sitting on the top of the bookshelf, crushed into the tiny space between it and the ceiling. His head twisted nearly upside down underneath his shoulders. Black fungus and thick red veins covered his face. His tongue lolled out over his nose, reaching his eye. I thought him dead, until he blinked and rolled his body back into a normal alignment slimming himself like a cat until he was free of the space. I thought to ask him something, but my voice caught in my throat as he rolled along the ceiling, pressed there by some unseen force. His arms smacked hard against the planks with each turn. Face up against the ceiling, his back contorted violently so that his eyes could meet mine. His arms coiled back and forth over his body like snakes. I screamed and ran from the room. Nothing remained of Aleph but a few bags of gold coins on the deck and some blood. I do not know if he threw himself overboard, but he was gone. Shadows flew overhead in the rotten sails, though my mind ached for me to look up at them. I ran through the ship then, frantically searching for any sign of life other than myself. Even the elusive Tav, if I could find him, I would save her his company. But there was nothing. Not a soul in all the ship save myself. 
myself and perhaps Christian, though his foul dandruff seemed to cover every surface now. It even stuck to my clothes and face, turning my skin as dark as Aleph's had been. Darker, even. Months pass. I have not eaten. I have not drank. Hunger and thirst burn in me, and yet I do not die. Overhead the shadows swing in the masts, which are rotted and gone now, yet still seem to flutter overhead. The sun does not shine through them, because there is no sun. Here in these doldrums it is always twilight. I've thrown myself overboard. I have hanged myself. But always I awake again into this feverish, flickering nightmare. I can sleep, here and there, but I remain tired. Every time I dream of Otaheite, a golden paradise, a dream the beach is underneath my feet, I've jumped free of this nightmare and swum to shore. There are lights in the distance. Lights that shine on supple brown skin in endless feasts of flesh and liquor and all the sweet things between. And I can smell it. I can taste it. I can almost feel it like warm breath on my neck. Then the ship rolls over a wave and I am again awake. The stench of this carrion vessel in my nose and the rot slowly eating away at me. So slowly so that I think it may never finish me. So I wait here, and try to sleep and dream of Otaheite. I place coins on my eyes and beg for rest, but this ship is my own and only. There is no Karen to ferry me from this place. My money is no good. I've felt the gentle touch of shallows beneath this vessel. They shake the golden fist, but they cannot destroy it. There are fluttering things in the endless dark overhead. Alien birds of an unknown shore. My crew of mutinous shadows dance in the rigging, preparing for us to land even as the mold grows thicker over me, grows into me, pulls me into the ship, further from the light, further from heaven, from heaven, oh to Haiti. Oh, heaven, what did you think? Have you ever kind of lost it, chasing after a dream, or do you have a dream you're chasing after now? Have you ever mutinied a ship, only to find yourself in the grips of madness as your ship sails into some place beyond the sky? Let us know in the West Side Fairy Tales Horror and Lit Club on Facebook. It's a place full of like-minded fans who talk about horror and literature and the show and whatever else comes to mind. They, and I, would love to hear from you, so hop on over to Facebook and search for the West Side Fairy Tales Horror and Lit Club today. While you're there, you can also follow our fan page just by searching West Side Fairy Tales, or if Twitter is more your speed, you can get to me at WS Fairy Tales. If you like pictures of creepy stuff and rabbits and sometimes food, then go to Instagram and follow us at West Side Fairy Tales. 
And if you'd like to support us monetarily, please consider heading to westsidefairytales.com slash merch and buying a souvenir of the show. We have t-shirts, hats, hoodies, and even mugs and stickers and other stuff, so head on by if you have a few bucks and want to show your support. You can also support us on Patreon, where just $1 gets you early access to all episodes. Higher tiers get you access to special episodes, super early, raw releases of the show without ads or intros, and even free merch. Contributions from listeners help this show to continue providing free, high-quality content, and we really can't thank all of you who support us enough. For those of you interested in a deeper breakdown of this month's recommendations, Dan Simmons' The Tear and the AMC adaptation of that book by David Kajganich, tune into the West Side Fairy Tales Horror and Lit Club episode that'll be dropping on the feed in two weeks. In those episodes, I provide some in-depth discussion on the recommendations, some history of their creation, and talk about what they mean to me as a horror author and writer. Also, if you'd like to chat with me directly sometime, you can hop into my Sunday evening video game streams at twitch.tv slash westsidetyler, where I try to work my way through different horror-related video games. Pop on in and say hi. Next month, we bring you the story of a woman who will do anything to escape her life of poverty in rural Guadalajara, Mexico, even make a deal with an odd little demon she finds living under her family home. I hope you'll join us the first Friday of February for our next story, Ojos Oscuros. And, until next time, as always, stay safe out there. The West Side Fairy Tales is written, read, scored, and produced by Tyler Bell. Episode artwork by Yui Breedlove. All content herein copyright 2019 WSF Productions, LLC. Something's not quite right in the quiet mountain town of Targrady, West Virginia. Months after a local teen was lynched in the dead of a hot summer night, two men stand charged with murder in what the majority opinion considers to be an open and shut case. But Adelaide Stevenson, a young crime reporter from Charleston, is finding out the smallest cracks in the official narrative run far, far deeper than she could have ever expected. Join Adelaide and West by God as she navigates small town secrets the dubious ethics of her own profession, and the dark whispers of an ancient creature, known to some as the Witcham Woman, who prowls the shadowed hollers that lie between night and nightmare. Sent on overnight assignment to cover the start of the trial, Adelaide quickly realizes the story she's been told, and been telling, doesn't make sense. Cryptic assertions of a concrete alibi are emailed to her by the family of the accused. Nobody in town seems comfortable discussing the basic facts of the case, and the murder she's been writing about wasn't the only tragic death this summer. Adelaide extends her stay against the wishes of her editor, and her investigations take a complicated and dangerous turn as she discovers the true depths of the mysteries surrounding Targrady. The only real evidence from the night of the murder may lie in the hands of a notorious local crime family led by an enigmatic woman known as the Fetid Queen. Local authorities seem to grow more hostile by the hour, and even Adelaide's own career might not survive this assignment. 
Featuring an eclectic cast of characters ranging from violent and horrifying to outlandish and fabulous, West by God is a must-read novel for anybody who enjoys Twin Peaks, Stephen King, and all the creepy places you find just off the path in the woods. It is the debut novel of Tyler Bell, a USMC infantry combat veteran, former crime and courts reporter for the Charleston Daily Mail, and creator of the award-winning Westside Fairy Tales horror and dark fiction podcast. Due for release by Henlow Press in October of 2023. Learn more at westsidefairytales.com slash westbygod.